This evening, I'd like to talk about the equanimous mind. Um, it's one of my favorite things to talk about. <laughs> uh, not so often I get to do so, but I think uh, just as it's a huge topic about equanimity, and just going to talk about a small section of it this evening. We live in such a world of change. There's pleasure and pain, praise and blame, and all of these things are arising and passing away. We tend to grasp onto the pleasant, and I'm sure you might have experienced that already in the last few days or the last few weeks. And it's perfectly natural to find pleasurable experiences to be agreeable and to find painful ones to be disagreeable. This is perfectly natural. Feeling is an intrinsic aspect of all experiences that we have. When we experience pleasant feelings, we enjoy them, and therefore we want to hold them. We want them to continue. We hope that they'll actually go on forever. The problem is that it changes. When things change, of course, we experience some level of dissatisfaction or suffering. And we meet this over and over again as we try to find happiness that's going to last, that's going to continue. And it can be quite frustrating that we do this. But the question comes up, what is really a reliable happiness that we can find? And the teaching suggests that the deepest and most stable mundane happiness is that of equanimity when the mind is balanced and at peace, a mind that can accept the pleasant or the unpleasant without reacting. The equanimous mind is not dependent on conditions to be happy. So there's a lot of power that just comes with that image, not dependent on conditions. The Buddha taught that we can learn to be balanced in response to all our experiences. And this doesn't mean that we don't feel anything anymore. It's not a matter of being completely blasé about things or completely unmoved by anything. It's natural to experience pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. We have these things. We can feel pleasure fully, yet without craving and clinging, and without thinking that it is going to bring us some ultimate sense of happiness. And we can feel painfully without condemning it or judging it or hating it. And we can keep experiencing the neutral events that we often miss, not as just something that we gloss over or just things that fill in the time until we have another experience that's more interesting in some way. A lovely teaching from the Samyutta Nikaya Even when obstacles crowd in, the path to Nibbāna can be won by those who establish mindfulness and bring to perfection equipoise. And we don't often hear that word, equipoise. But it's this non-reactivity and it's a state that we usually refer to as equanimity. And it leads to freedom in each moment. It can be very immediate, actually, when we experience it. It's the sense of being completely balanced, very strongly, steadily there, very open to receive 
and very accepting no matter what is happening. And you might have had glimpses of it, that you are for perhaps a few moments or even longer, that you feel like that, very calm, very steady, very balanced. The image that's often used is that image of the mountain where everything can sort of, all the weather changes can come and go and the mountain is still steady. Sometimes I feel like the mountain can be helpful because I can feel like I'm sitting in that same way and things might be all around and I'm just sitting very steady. But sometimes it can feel almost too rigid, too grounded, but too tight when that happens. And so there's also, for me, a very helpful image of the sort of the gentle bamboo that tends to move with but always come back to center. So that capacity to be very steady, but also some fluidity within that as well. This kind of equanimity has to be based on a vigilant presence of mind. So this comes up again from what I was saying last week, talking about being diligent, clear knowing, and mindful. These are the things that I think come together and out of that comes this deep sense of balance and equanimity. It's a result of training. It's not just a gem, a very casual outcome that comes up unexpectedly from a passing mood, but we can really cultivate it and train for it. Now, this observation might sound that it's not very much at all. You all know it, you're all familiar with it. But it is actually very important to be aware of. Seeing what arises and passes away in the mind and body each moment allows what we experience to become something known and deeply understood rather than something shaped entirely by unconscious conditioning. So we're always looking at this. We're always seeing where we get caught in our habit patterns, where we're so deeply conditioned to do certain things. By seeing this, we start to look at it in a different way. Such mindfulness provides a necessary foundation or prerequisite for the transformative step pointed to by the Buddha, insight into the nature of phenomena. And the teaching here is one knows something that is conditioned, gross, dependently arisen. On the other hand, one knows this is peaceful, this is sublime, this is equanimity. So we start to distinguish between these experiences we're having. The agreeable that arises, the disagreeable that arises, and the both agreeable and disagreeable that arise cease in one, and equanimity is then established. But the establishment of equanimity will only really happen if it's deeply connected to insight. This is what we're talking about here. What is the nature of the insight that we're looking at? We're always looking at where we get caught. It's the easiest way, actually, to look at equanimity is to see when it's not there, actually. Not when we're in balance, but when we're out of balance, when we're completely thrown off and we know that we're not centered, steady, present, we know that we're completely scattered. We can see that over and over again, and that really helps us to know more about equanimity 
when we're reacting rather than non-reactive. And we can watch how we get triggered, how we come back. We get thrown off, how we come back to center. This is so much of your practice, learning about that in that way. And a phrase, I think, that can be really helpful that comes from the Brahma Viharas in this sense. May my heart be at ease with the inner and outer changing conditions of life. May our heart be at ease with these inner and outer changing conditions of life. And what are these changing conditions of life? These worldly conditions, these worldly preoccupations that we usually get caught in. Gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, birth and death, arise and pass away. These are where we can really place our attention. I mentioned something about the Dalai Lama last week and looking at praise and blame and judgment and the judging mind. And I'd like to read a little bit of his teaching here on that, where he reflects on praise and blame in a commentary about finding comfort and ease in meditation on the great perfection. And the teaching here was, see the equality of praise and blame, approval and disapproval, good and bad reputation, for they are just like illusions or dreams and have no true existence. These words refer to the eight worldly concerns, wanting to be praised and not wanting to be criticized, wanting happiness and not wanting suffering, wanting gain and not wanting loss, wanting fame and approval and not wanting rejection and disgrace. We all experience these things, don't we? I think all of us are concerned in particular about maintaining a good reputation, says the Dalai Lama. For example, when I'm up here on this throne teaching from time to time, somewhere in the back of my mind there appears the thought, how am I doing? How are people going to react to this? Are they going to praise me? Maybe not. Oh, that didn't go well. Will people criticize me? Whenever this happens, I need to catch myself and say, look now, that I'm here on this throne transmitting the Dharma teachings. I shouldn't allow myself to be affected like this by the eight worldly concerns. So even the Dalai Lama gets caught in these things. (laughs) However, we'll find that hopes, fears, and discursive thoughts of every description will come into our minds. They do. They happen. Even very pure monks might sometimes harbor a concern in the back of their minds about whether or not people give them a few words of praise. Even worse, they might start trying to impress others in order to receive offerings or be invited to perform rituals. The eight worldly concerns can creep on us quite stealthily and sneakily, and even when we do something virtuous, they will try to find a way to slip in. (laughs) If we really stop and think about praise and criticism, we will see that they don't have the least importance. Whether we receive praise or criticism is of no account. The only important thing is that we have a pure motivation and let the law of cause and effect be our witness. If we're really honest, 
we can see that it makes no difference whether we receive praise and acclaim. The whole world might sing our praises, but if we've done something wrong, then we will still have to suffer the consequences for ourselves. According to the law of karma, each and every one of us must answer individually for our actions. This is how we can put a stop to these kinds of thoughts altogether. By seeing how they are completely insubstantial, like dreams or magical illusions. When people praise us and we glow with delight, it's because we think that being praised is beneficial. So so this teaching advises, learn to bear these things patiently as if they were mere echoes. In exactly the same way when somebody says something unpleasant or hurtful to us, we need to learn to be patient and forbearing and remind ourselves that their words are just like the sounds of an echo, equally insubstantial and unreal. I like that image of the echo, just insubstantial, unreal, just echoes in the mind. So I think in that teaching, the Dalai Lama deeply expresses his deep empathy and compassion for himself and for others as well in the audience and his connection from a place that's totally non-judgmental. But seeing how these things come up and they go. It's said that equanimity can be really hard to experience when just beginning to meditate or sometimes perhaps when we just come back into meditation or onto retreat after a long time away. We recognize it when we see that it's um, really deeply connected to the heart and it's coming from a place of empathy. It responds to what it needs so it can open and hold the feeling or the perception or the thought that's arising in an open and non-reactive way. Just as the Dalai Lama was saying, just offering the space to see these things come and go. It's a rare quality. Ajahn Suchito says that this is because our normal response to ourselves and others is to pick at the flaws and to polish and relish the good. This is natural enough, but where equanimity comes in is in meeting situations and conditions that we seem unable to change with balance. Without equanimity, we get frustrated to the point of anger or despair. We give up or lose faith. Equanimity retains empathy. It is not indifferent, and it's totally patient. Through being balanced, through being patient, equanimous, we can see those patterns of thoughts and behavior as they come and go and let them just do that. Nothing else is needed when we can sit in this way. So this provides a natural and very neutral space to pay attention and see how what we take to be me is a dynamic process of just constantly arising and passing away, of energies, impulses, thoughts, reactions, all of these things coming and going, without adding anything to what's happening. We just see the natural flow of karma. 
It's a process. It's not a me, a mine. If we sit in this way and observe, another realization is that mind states are ever-changing. If we can stay aware and balance, we see that any emotion or thought or mind state will come to an end. If awareness continues, it can be seen that any arising dharmas come together or are compounded from certain conditions called dependent arising. Ajahn Suchito says, we can study this rather like the way that vapor forms droplets on a cool glass. Drops don't suddenly arise. There is a misting that condenses until droplets form. And that depends on there being a suitable surface, coolness, and steam. What this means is that dharmas that seem to be so entrenched don't have to stay stuck. This is a big, interesting relief that we can find. This realization deepens the understanding of change to a more penetrative understanding of the fundamental insubstantiality and dependent arising of all dharmas. So just looking at how that might evolve in our practice, I'd like to offer a teaching that was expressed about Ajahn Chah. It was um, this short story tells of how Ajahn Chah was wandering through the countryside looking for peaceful places to practice. And one day he came across a deserted monastery about a half a kilometer from the edge of a hamlet. And um, he felt, his mind felt very light and tranquil. It was as if there was a kind of gathering of the forces. And one night there was a festival on in the village. And sometime after 11 o'clock, while he was walking at night, he said, I began to feel rather strange. In fact, this feeling, an unusual kind of calmness and ease, had first appeared during the day. When I became weary from walking, I went into the small grass-roofed hut to sit and was taken by surprise. Suddenly, my mind desired tranquility so intensely that I could hardly cross my legs quickly enough. It just happened by itself. Almost immediately, the mind did indeed become peaceful. It felt firm and stable. It wasn't that I couldn't hear the sounds of merrymakers in the village. I could still hear them. But if I wished to, I could not hear them. It was strange. While I paid no attention to the sounds, there was silence. If I wanted to hear them, I could and felt no irritation. Within my mind, it was as if there were two objects standing there together with no connection between them. I saw the mind and its sense object established in different areas. I realize that if concentration is still weak, you hear sounds, but when the mind is empty, there is silence. If a sound arises and you look at the awareness of it, 
you see that the awareness is separate from the sound. I reflected, well, how else could it be? That's just the way it is. They're unconnected. I kept considering this point until I realized, ah, this is important. When continuity between things is broken, then there is peace. Formerly there had been continuity, and now from it emerged peace. I continued with my meditation. My mind was completely indifferent to all external phenomena. Completely indifferent. Balanced, steady, clear. So I think just in that example, we get a feel that there was mindfulness, there was the right effort and energy just to stay with Ajahn Chah at that time to see what's happening, a willingness to look at and investigate what's arising. These are the factors of awakening. They're called the factors of awakening. They're qualities of heart and mind that arise from practice, actually, and represent the essence of where the Buddha's teachings are leading us. When truly understood, these factors move us to inspiring and genuine experiences in our practice. And they're very, very relevant to our meditation. So you will probably be familiar with them. But just to reconnect, mindfulness is central to the whole practice, balances all the other factors. It's a clear awareness of knowing what is happening every moment, in any moment, seeing things as they really are. So this is where we start, and it stays through the whole process. And next come three factors that are very arousing qualities. Energy or effort, and a lot of the time I teach about energy and effort. I think it's something that you're always experimenting with. Simply the effort to start with of just knowing what's happening, knowing what's arising. But as it becomes more and more balanced, and we really understand how to use effort and energy skillfully, it can really uplift and support and sustain us in practice. So there's mindfulness, energy or effort, investigation of the dhammas, really encouraging us to have a willingness to investigate the deepest questions of life. And from there comes rapture, pity, interest or joy, which brings a lightness of heart and a fresh motivation to keep practicing. And then after that comes along three very stabilizing factors. And these are tranquility or serenity or calm, concentration or samadhi, and equanimity. When we speak here of concentration and samadhi, we're looking at that collectedness, that quality of mind that is very strongly stable and focused on objects or one object in particular. So for one deep level of concentration, we talk about being concentrated on one fixed object and it stops all discursive thinking and brings profound and peaceful states of absorption. 
And the other way we can practice with concentration, samadhi, is fully and being connected and collected fully on whatever is arising in every moment. Any changing object that is arising in each moment, we're developing more and more movement of moment-to-moment samadhi. So the basis of well-established factors of awakening is mindfulness. We investigate the nature of subject reality. How to contemplate and how to use them in practice. It's a natural unfolding in many ways but we can work with them similar to the ways that we work with the hindrances. And this is coming from the teachings of the Satipatthana Sutta, where we become aware of the presence or the absence of the mental quality and the conditions for its arising or its absence. So we really look deeply at what we're knowing here. But the difference between the hindrances and the factors of awakening is in the hindrances we want to find the conditions for them not to continue to arise, while with the factors of awakening we want to find the conditions to strengthen and cultivate them in our practice, these qualities of mind. But we don't have to do very much different. They can come up with all levels of practice in some way or another. It may be mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of the body. It might be the Brahma Viharas. It might be a deep focus on the breath. It might be contemplation of the three characteristics. All of these things, we can start to see how we can naturally bring these factors into our practice. The ones I'd like to just talk a little bit more tonight about are the factors of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Equanimity, because we've already been talking about that. Usually the focus when we are giving instructions often is to look at mindfulness and to look at right effort, wise effort, how we use energy, and bringing in a level of investigation and reflection into practice. For myself, I know that the things that I naturally incline towards in my mind are tranquility and concentration and equanimity. They seem to come much more easily, though I know for most people this isn't the case. For a lot of people, it's very hard to really deepen into a deep level of concentration. So I want to look at these tonight and just think about how they work for you, how you use them, how you can bring them forth and encourage them in your practice. They're lovely factors to explore. Pasadi, or tranquility, or calm, or serenity, is important because of the soothing quality it brings to practice. That soothing quality is very important when it helps to experience peace of body and mind. Even the words like soothing, tranquility, serenity, peace of body and mind can bring a sort of a very lovely effect just to hold those things. It can also bring a composure when practice brings challenges 
And it can bring a sense of of lightness into the practice as well. How does it deepen? Through wise attention. And I think very much through patience. The willingness just to sit with, to be calm, to open to whatever's arising. And sometimes it can actually need just a tangible sense of softening the body so that we can calm the breathing and soothe the mind, see the relationship between those things. We hear in the instructions, breathing in one trains in calming bodily formations. This is what we're doing. How do we do that? Each of you have your own ways of settling in and calming bodily formations. This is the opposite of restlessness and worry, of course. So if there's hindrances of restlessness and worry, how can we bring that sense of soothing calmness to hold them? Tranquility is said to be the antidote to restlessness and worry. And when tranquility is present in this that sense of calm, you might notice there's not a lot of wanting in the mind and not a lot of desire coming up in the mind. It's more easily contented, more easily just willing to stay in that space. And it's said that it naturally conditions concentration, naturally conditions concentration. And this is a wonderful thing to hold in practice. Often people try hard to get concentrated. But if we can set the conditions and see what happens, often concentration will come naturally. It'll arise. And this comes from having that sense of happiness as a state of mind and a lessening of distractions. Whichever samadhi we're really cultivating in practice, and each of you will be doing it differently, it comes to be what is called a pleasant abiding here and now. And again, those words are so profound. This pleasant abiding here and now. When combined with wisdom, samadhi or concentration has the potential for awakening. Wisdom comes with concentration because it brings such strong steadiness of mind and body along with clearly knowing and clearly seeing what is present. And another way of encouraging samadhi is said, of a cause for samadhi, and I think a cause for that sense of tranquility and peace, is sila. And the reason for that is because when we're really, really cultivating sila, we don't have any remorse at all, or very little remorse. So our minds feel at peace, our hearts are peaceful. Out of this comes equanimity. So each 
of us will find our own ways to cultivate or open to or know when these factors are present in practice. And of course, we all benefit from ease and peace of mind. With a calm and integrated mind, we're really able to withstand some of the tumultuous times that we may have in practice that we may find too challenging. If we don't have that capacity to be stable and calm and settled, we can easily get thrown off balance. These factors really help to stay in a balanced position and not be overwhelmed by fear or anxiety that may come up as we progress in this path of insight. The main point here is balance. Always coming back into balance. Always finding how to re-establish it. That's why equanimity is called a balanced frame or a balanced state of mind. The key is to maintain balance whatever the experiences are that are arising in any moment, be they pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. This refined mental balance or equipoise, as I mentioned that word before, corresponds to the well-developed satipatthana words that a meditator is able to dwell independently, not clinging to anything in the world. So if we're calm, in balance, mindful, and we're also diligent and clear-knowing about what's happening, the practice will mature. And there's the establishment of equipoise that is needed to break through to awakening. So I think that's quite a lot to absorb and to bring into reflection in practice. And I'd like to now give another little story from Ajahn Chah. He's the theme this evening, I think, because some of the stories... um, are quite lovely to reflect on. Oh, maybe not. The words, he abides, independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a bhikkhu abides, contemplating mind as mind. A very powerful teaching. And this example is given, it's a very simple example, I think, but it helps to see what is really being expressed here. 
talking about Ajahn Chah, saying that almost every day and most of every day, Ajahn Chah would sit on a small wicker bench beneath the shade of his hut and receive a constant stream of visitors. And he was very, very famous at this time. So he was always having hundreds and thousands of people coming to see him. And this is um, when he was really very, very well known throughout Thailand and much of the Western world as a spiritual teacher who is very straightforward, very humorous, but very earthy in his teachings to everyone, not just monastics. And people could really feel his wisdom and his purity of heart. So it said one day, amongst a whole huge cluster of people that were listening to him and that had gathered around to hear his teachings, there was one middle-aged Thai man um, from another province who came to hear Ajahn Chah for the first time. And he was really impressed by the serenity of Ajahn Chah. Um, And he really loved his good humor and his lightness as well, and his loving kindness, and his mountain-like ease, his capacity to be such like a mountain of a man to whom this particular person was listening. And he took it all in. This man sat there listening, very fascinated, and felt like Ajahn Chah was very truthful, really speaking from the heart, and really reflected a man who was at peace. Um, And this man, this visitor, was very curious, and he actually was um, a reader of palms, and he was a type of um, clairvoyant or astrologer. And he was a little hesitant to tell Ajahn Chah this, but he was really fascinated by Ajahn Chah's stories, and he was trying to read his palm. So he kept edging closer and closer through the audience to get closer, and because Ajahn Chah was giving lots of gestures and things, and so this man was coming closer and closer to see if he could have a look as these gestures were going on. He knew that Ajahn Chah was really a major critic of a lot of superstition and a lot of sort of protective amulets and paraphernalia that gets caught up around religious traditions. So he wasn't very happy about sort of saying to Ajahn Chah, can I read your palm? I'm a palmist. (laughs) Or can I sort of tell you some astrology? (laughs) But he was so fascinated by Ajahn Chah, he thought it might be reflected in his palms. So he decided that he really had to do something and he had to say something to Ajahn Chah. So he said, um, Long Po, forgive me for being so rude and pardon me if it's improper to ask, but I'm a palmist and it would make me very happy to be able to have a look at your hands. Would it be possible? So eyeing him with a friendly and penetrating glance, Ajahn Chah could see that the man was sincere and honest with no ulterior motive. So giving a sort of a gruff, all-purpose affirmative, he sort of said, okay. And he also tossed in a couple of amicably derogatory comments like, don't tell me I'm going to win a lottery. (laughs) (laughs) So he held out his hands in front of him, palms upwards, side by side. So the man shuffled right forward to have a look at his palms and he put on a well-worn pair of spectacles to have a closer look and he peered and then he kept saying, please excuse me. And he took hold of his hands and he looked at one to the other, back and forth, tracing the lines with his fingertips. 
Shaking his head in wonderment, he looked up and said, Long poor, this is amazing. Look at this line here. And glancing up again somewhat sheepishly, he said, You have a lot of anger. <laughs> Ajahn Chah said, Yes. His face illuminated um, with a huge, huge grin. He said, Yes, that's true, but I don't use it. <laughs> you know, I think this is such a lovely teaching that we have these things. It's not like we get rid of them all, you know? But we don't have to pick them up. We don't have to use them. We may have wanting, we may have greed, we may have delusion that comes and visits the mind, or anger or aversion. We don't have to judge ourselves so strongly, but we don't have to use them. This is a wonderful way of balancing, I think, equanimity. It's natural. It's natural that in a virtuous person, one of consummate virtue, freedom from remorse will arise. It's natural that in a person free from remorse, gladness will arise. It's natural that in a glad person, rapture will arise. It's natural that for an enraptured person, the body will be calmed. It is natural that for a person of a calmed body, there will be pleasure. And it's natural that the mind of a person feeling pleasure will be concentrated. And it's natural that a person whose mind is concentrated will see things as they actually are. And it's natural that a person seeing things as they actually are will grow disenchanted and dispassionate. And it's natural that a disenchanted and dispassionate person will realize the knowledge and vision of release. So I'd just like to speak to end this evening a little more about disenchantment and dispassion. Words from Joseph Goldstein. Sometimes people feel that recognizing the truth of suffering conditions a pessimistic outlook on life, that somehow it is life-denying. Actually, it's quite the reverse. By denying what is true, for example, the truth of impermanence, we live in a world of illusion and enchantment. Then when circumstances change in ways we don't like, we feel disappointed, angry, or bitter. The Buddha expressed the liberating power of seeing the unreliability of conditions. All that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. Becoming disenchanted, one becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, the mind is liberated. It's telling that in English, disenchanted, disillusioned, and dispassionate often have a negative connotation but looking more closely at their meaning reveals their connection to freedom. Becoming disenchanted means breaking the spell of enchantment, waking up into a greater and fuller reality. This is the happy ending of so many great myths and fairy tales. Being disillusioned is not the same as being disappointed or discouraged. 
It is a reconnection with what is true, free from illusion. And dispassionate does not mean indifference or lacking of vital energy for living. Rather, it is a mind of great openness and equanimity. So let's just sit and feel that. That sense of being dispassionate, not being indifferent, but having a mind of great openness, peace and equanimity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.